Thanks, Keith. Good morning, Hope. And a very warm welcome to everybody who is visiting. I know uh, uh, Keith sent the welcome out. I want to do the same. If you're visiting, we're really glad you're here. We're going to open up to Colossians chapter 2 because we are a Bible-preaching church. Amen? Amen. So Colossians 2, we always encourage that you bring a Bible and that you open it in front of you so that you can uh, read along in your own uh, uh, book right there in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, please speak to myself, one of the deacons, anybody who does speaking on stage, any of those guys, or just steal one from the back desk if there's still any leftovers. They're they're free and we want to give them to you. So if you don't have a Bible, please talk to us and we'll get you one. Uh, We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. Now, in this... This point, we're, we're here because of his, his centrality, Paul's, Paul's concentration on the gospel today, especially as it is partaken in or received through the symbolism of baptism. So, so that's where we'll be going towards the end, is, is applying this all up into the symbol of the ordinance of baptism. But, but Paul's reason for writing the whole Colossian letter is because he has a deep concern for the Colossian church based on the news and the letters and the the reports that he had heard from them and from their midst and from people around them. He was concerned for the Colossian church because they were being tricked. They were in the process of being tricked and deceived. There was a new teaching going around. There was additions to the gospel. Now, we just need to remind ourselves, however much you know, however new you are here, however little you know of theology or any of that, the gospel is our foundational revelation of God. That means that in, in it is the truth that we know, and that truth in the gospel of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and rule and reign, and that we receive forgiveness by faith alone, in that little little piece of information that it sounds like one sentence and yet he has already said in Colossians that in him, in Jesus, in the gospel, all of the wisdom and knowledge that is possible in all of the universe, it is all compressed, compacted and concentrated in the good news of Jesus Christ. So that if you know Jesus, you know more than the philosophers. If you have received Jesus, you have received more than all of the angelic host. If you believe the gospel, then you have the teaching that never needs addition, that never needs subtraction, that never needs editing, that never needs improving. But the Colossians were allowing that gospel message that they had once heard to be saved, to be edited, to be added to, to be distracted, to be warped and to be confused. There were people who were teaching that they had these these extra and special revelations from God, these messages from heaven. They had a a power that tapped into the angelic realm and they had sort of the the influence of angels throughout their teaching. There was even the process, as as you see later on in chapter 2, of worshipping angels. There was all of these philosophies, these human traditions. Some of them had carried over from the unbiblical Jewish practices. Some of them were coming up out of the Greek culture. Their philosophy, their unverified claims. All of this stuff was confusing and threatening the the gospel clarity and primacy in the Colossian church and witness. And Paul was extremely concerned. So he goes to, and he writes this book of Colossians, and read with me from verse 11, in, sorry, verse 8, we'll, we'll start in with verse 8, that, that sort of brings in this introductory thought. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in himself. This is the word of the, in, the eternal authoritative God and therefore he will bless it in our midst. Amen? Amen. Well, as Paul, Paul goes here, he, he doesn't actually spend this whole letter unpacking and explaining their error and bringing down the, 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 the Colossian heresy. Rather, what he does in, in, the, in, the, in the main push and main scope of this letter is exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Where he knows that people have been confused and distracted, it's because they don't know the truth of Jesus. If people are being distracted by, by the glittery uh, a coin that is on the, the road, if somebody's distracted by that, it's because they have missed the shining glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so what he does is he unpacks chapter after chapter of the, the, the infinite glory that is in Jesus. And because it's in Jesus, it's therefore in the gospel on display and on offer for us because in the gospel we receive all of Jesus. So he goes and he exalts the Lord Jesus Christ by, in order to secure them away from error, away from lies, away from a false gospel that will condemn their souls. <coughs> Some of you have, similar to the Colossians, <coughs> you have in your past, maybe now, allowed yourselves to be distracted or through ignorance been lied to and you have been told that the real glory of what, what God puts on offer is in some kind of life where we're always getting messages from heaven. It's a distraction, throw it away. Some of you have believed that in order to be, to be filled with God's fullness, there is laws and requirements and stipulations that you have to follow. And once you get to a, a good enough standard, enough prayer meetings, enough baptisms of the Holy Spirit, enough of the spiritual gifts, enough of the rosaries, enough of the praying to the saints, enough of the penance, enough of confession, anything like that, you, you've gotten into this rut of thinking that there's something we do, and once we've done enough, we tap into the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Others of you have simply been distracted by sin, as we just sung. You are wandering, you are prone to weakness, and you have wandered. And right now, as you've come, maybe, maybe visiting, maybe this is your regular church, maybe you're a member here, you are now sitting in a rut of your own making due to sin. It was a sin in the way that you're sinning against your family, your loved ones, your employers or your employees, your church family. Maybe it's, it's merely between you and the Lord Jesus and it's private. 
It might be sexual. It might be lying. It might be some kind of sin like that. And you've allowed yourself to wander like the Colossians because wherever, this is the rule for life, wherever there is a distraction from the glory of the Lord Jesus and the gospel, sin's weeds will always grow. They will always find a grip on you if your heart is not captivated by and overly given over to the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. If we are not comprehending, beholding the glorious God in Jesus Christ, we will be feeding ourselves on and beholding sinful distractions. So to you, the Lord Jesus has brought you here today by his ordinary means of the church service, by his providence, his control over every day of our lives. He's brought you here so that if you're distracted in any of those ways or you are wandering in sin, you can today meet afresh the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, which forgives our sins and gives us new life. There's no one sitting here who is outside of that offer. Now, I can't list out every sin that I know that each of you have committed, and that's a few. You don't have time to list out all the sins that you've committed. I remember reading a story of a revival where a guy would, would preach and he would have revelations of the sins in front of people. And, and he was a reformed guy. He wasn't a crazy wacko dude. And he's just sitting there and goes, you know, Melissa, this needs to be repented of. And, and people were afraid to go and talk to him. And, and yet this was what he did. Now, I don't have that power. Don't pray for it either. I think that would be horrible. But, but you might think, yeah, he made the offer for mercy and he, that's because he doesn't know where I'm sitting. There's probably other G-rated sinners around here. The mercy is, ex, is, is all exhausted. It's empty now. It's not an offer for me anymore. I don't care where you, how long you've been a member, how long you've been a churchgoer, how long, how long you've called yourself a Christian, how, how badly you've fallen and run away. To you, the fullness of Jesus is on offer. You're not more of a sinner than Jesus is of a savior. It's, but it's time to get into the text. <clears throat> So first of all, we're going to see, number one, Jesus died to cancel our legal record. Secondly, so we're going to see two things that he did outside of us and two things that he does for us, in us, to us. He, first of all, outside of us, died to cancel our legal record. Secondly, he defeated the spiritual powers. Those two things happen outside of us. And the things that he does to us, in us, is that he raises us with him in new life, and, sec- and secondly, he, he sets us free from demonic powers. So look with me to verse 13, halfway through verse 13. The center, the, the diadem on the crown of this passage is verse 13, halfway through and then into verse 14. Uh, towards the end, Paul says, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Let's just read that one again and actually believe it's talking about you from an omniscient God who knows everything you've done. God is apostle to write this down so that you can read it. Look at the words again. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's the good news. Forgiveness. How? How does he forgive us? Verse 14, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Some of us, and again, I won't ask you to put up your hand, 
But geographically, statistically, some of us have a legal record against the law, okay? Don't put your hand up, not gonna, not, not gonna call anybody on that, but, but some people here have a legal record. You have a, you have a file somewhere in the government's database and it has things written on it that you did and you have therefore incurred guilt. A, a punishment, a, a fine. Now, some of those things will have been paid off. That's why you're here and not in the jailhouse. You've paid them off. And so they've got a record that you had a, a guilty record which brought about a, a, a legal requirement that it must be fulfilled. It was a fine. It was time served. It was picking up rubbish on the community highway, whatever it is. It was done. It was paid for. Therefore, it's cancelled. It has no legal power over you to condemn and yet it stays on your record. It is there. The next government job you go for, no one here is going to do that. But, you know, you get desperate enough, the next government job you apply for, they'll see that on your record. The next, the next time maybe you apply for a blue card or a license or a passport or something, they'll see that there because though paid, it is still against your record. What we're told is that each one of us has in the heavenly places, in, in the mind of God, not, not a literal book but a, but a symbolic book, an account, and it has to be a book because of all the sinning we do. There's a book with each one of our names written on each of our books in the mind of God, and on it is the record of every sin we have committed in thought, in word, in intention, in motive, in deed, in the body, in the mouth, whatever we've done or said or thought or felt that is wrongly, uh, wrongly uh, responding to the glory of God, that is wrongly acting out the sins of our heart, those things are kept down. So that's the, that's the record of debt. But the second part of that is that not only is there a record, the record holds with it legal demands. You see this in, in verse 14. There was a record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. I'm not going to allow you to get into any sort of mindset of denial this morning or hopeful agnosticism that you tell yourself that record does not stand. It stands. And because it is in the mind of God and written with the pen of God, we don't get to decide that it does not stand. There is no application for, for, for a removal of this record. It stands. And more fearfully so, it stands against us. It is not neutral. It is not that there is a, a general systemic societal sin in some sense. It has your name on it. It has a dotted line which will be signed with your eternal blood in the fires of hell. It stands and it stands against us. And yet, that, that record of debt that stands against us, has secondary to it the, the, the payment that must be made, the legal demand. And that legal demand is that your soul would be reckoned back to God to be done with as is fit, as is fitting, as is suitable for you, a sinner. Meaning the punishment. The legal demands are the punishment that you must pay because the record of debt stands against you. And this, had the solution only been, been the first part, had God told us through the, the, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, there is a record of debt that stands against you with its legal demands, but it's okay. Jesus has, has hacked into the mind of God, the plan of God, the eternal decrees, whatever. He has somehow removed the record of debt. What we have in that cheap gospel is an unjust gospel. It's not a gospel because it's not good news. 
That would tell us that in order to love you so much and forgive you, God is not just, God is not fair, God is not good. He's a horrible God. He's a hellish God. He's a satanic God. Because he looks at the sins that we commit and say, that's all right. Me too. Like my standards aren't much higher than yours. Can you imagine a God that freely forgives without the legal demands being met? That God is a devil, but he does not exist. The true God, the true God which holds the records of debt against us, has not just burned the records, he met the legal requirement. This is what it means when it says that Jesus set them aside, nailing it to the cross at the end of verse 15. These He set aside the record of debt he set aside. Now, not just to be done away with, not just to be forgotten, not hopefully to be lost in the paperworks of heaven. There's a lot of things going on up there. Not just that, but he set it aside, and then in his body, it was nailed to the cross so that the demands that were made by those legal records of your sins against you with your name, your name, your papers were pinned to the Lord Jesus and representing you, he took your sins to the cross and set aside the record of debt by fulfilling their requirements. As Jesus hung on the cross and died, he bore in his body our sins on the tree, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid onto him, set aside our records of debt onto him, the iniquity of us all. That's Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 6. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That is, Christ redeemed us from the, the legal demands of the law. By becoming a curse for us. Where that legal record was going to be pinned to us. Like an anvil around your neck thrown into the sea. It was going to drag you down into the depths of hell. That legal record stamped against your account into your soul will have kept you pinned to the very bottoms of hell for eternity. But Christ removed the record, pinned it to himself, and therefore went to the cross in order to fulfill the legal demands, the punishment of our sins. And therefore, Acts 3 verse 19, in preaching to the sinful religious crowd, Peter says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. In the ancient world, they had this this system of record-keeping, accountant-keeping, debt accountancy, where your your debts are against you between yourself and a certain other other economical partner or whatever it is. They would would keep your record. And and what some of the more wealthy people had was, was scrolls that were dipped in some kind of wax sealant so that the ink could go onto the scroll, the ink could mark the scroll, But at the point of that debt being paid, the debt could be removed from the scroll, like a Sharpie on wax. It it doesn't stick anymore. They would get a certain solvent, they would dip in a rag, and they would blot out. This is the language that Peter just used. Your sins on your account that were staining and were crimson, Christ's blood, by what he did on the cross, is able to exact them up out of your soul, exact them up out of the accounts and the records of God's holy justice, and in himself, remove them. 
have them wiped away clean so that now before God, as you ask, as you inquire, as the angels want to know, as you walk up to those pearly gates and you inquire or are inquired of, what is the standing, what is the state, what is the the record of debt against you, sinner? What is on your record that will determine whether or not you come into heaven? The answer of the Christian who has been blotted out in Christ is, the record that I owe is nil. The record in my account is a lived life of perfection under the love and law of God. Because I have Jesus' record. He took mine, nailed it to himself on the cross, suffered its punishment so that I could receive his record. The imputed, this is the religious language, the imputation, it's also a financial language. It was accounted to us, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, the forgiveness of all of our trespasses. This is your greatest problem. I don't don't know some of you, Some of you I only know in passing. Some of you I know as dear friends. And yet, I I don't know you all the way down to the bottom. I I don't know your soul. You know yourself and you know, at least in part, you know yourself. And you know that you've got big problems in life and it might be your marriage and it might be your relationships and it might be your finances and it might be your, 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 your employment and it might be your own, your own sense of guilt or lack of fulfillment or dissatisfaction with the world or a mental health issue, whatever it is. They're all legitimate problems and all of them pale in comparison to what Paul will address as your actual legitimate worst problem in your life. Because solve all of those problems, feel fulfilled, feel satisfied, have a great marriage, nail it in the bank account, just, just kill it in this life, live big, die, you meet a holy God. Your biggest problem is what is the state of the records that God has against you. Let's simplify it. Your biggest problem is that God is opposed to you. He stands against you because of your sins. So that as every other problem may be real, they are used as distraction, distractions so that you don't think about this legitimate, infinite problem today. What is the state of your soul before the holy God? Have you believed in Christ? Have you had your sins removed, blotted out, nailed to the cross so that you are before God a child, forgiven, adopted, loved, accepted? If not, you still stand under the greatest problem imaginable, that God's holy standards stand against you. But in Jesus, it can be solved. And the second part of what Jesus did, so this is is Paul extolling Jesus, talking about what Jesus did. Two things he did outside of us, two things he did to us. The second thing that he did outside of us, so first of all, he cancelled our record of debt by dying on the cross. Secondly, and this is secondary, but it's not insignificant. It's not insignificant, but it is secondary. This is only secondary, and yet it is a reality that the Scriptures point us to. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, verse 15. He disarms the rulers and the authorities. And yes, he's talking about the demonic realm, the, 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 the schema, the hierarchy of, of fallen angels that are an enemy against God's people and against God himself. He disarmed those beings and their ruling authorities 
Which is why, um, <coughs> sorry, in the, uh, the uh, and he's saying this because the false teachers coming to Corinth are, are over-obsessing about demonic possession, right? You've got a cold, it's the sniffle demon. You don't like what the pastor says? Well, you've got a dissenting spirit demon. You've got a sore ankle? You can fill in the rest. You, you, uh, uh, you, you feel depressed? You got it. That's a demon. Let's, let's pray for, for months, weeks, years. Let's, let's just go down to the root and find out what happened to you, what happened to your ancestors, what, what, what people sinned in your past against you or to you or you yourself, and let's find what little, what little demonic key there is in your life. It's all about the demons. There was an over-obsession of demons. But what went hand in hand with that was an over-obsession of angels. Because what can defeat demons but angels? And so there was also in the Colossian era and heresy a, a deal of angel worship. You actually see that later on in, um, uh, uh, in, uh, from uh, about verse 16 onwards. He talks about the worship of angels as being part of their era. <clears throat> this is still a, a tool of false teachers today, an overemphasis on the demon's presence. Now, Paul doesn't, doesn't now write to uh, address that, not, neither will I today, and say they don't exist, they don't matter, they're not enemies, we don't ever need to think about them. That's not the response. The, the right response, which corrects how we think about angels and demons, is the gospel of Jesus to realize that though they are enemies, they are a vanquished foe. They are rulers and they are authorities, and that's, that's pretty intimidating. But he's disarmed them. Like they have armies and they have, they have legions and they have, they have weaponry. And yet every one of those weapons have been turned into styrofoam swords. I just don't get very afraid when the foam axe that I made my son gets thrown at me in the morning. Not a big threat. Neither should the Christian fear what the demons may do because though real, they are, they are the boxing opponent that is tied up, sat down and gagged in the corner. Not a massive threat anymore unless by folly, by false doctrine, by sin, by, by sinful activity in trying to seek out de uh, angelic or demonic activity, you go and un untie that thing. You go and take the gag off yourself. I mean, unless we are doing that, there is no fear that Christians ought to have of demons because Jesus has vanquished the foe. He doesn't relegate them to insignificance. Paul doesn't do that. He just tells us that Christ has con conquered them, and particularly in this way. We need to ask the question, what is the weaponry? If he, if he tells us here he disarms the rulers... Well, what was the armory that the rulers and authorities had? And what it was, was the same thing that Jesus solved in verse 13 and 14. It was the record of your guilt. The greatest reason that demons had, a, had such a sway in the world, have such a, an activity in, in the unbelieving world pretty unpopular to sort of think that way as, as Westerners. You know, we realize it's all just, it's all mental in, uh, imbalance or it's actually just uh, uh, other things. There's no actual spirits out there influencing the world. Well, I'm, I don't have a tin hat on. I don't think they're all lizards and they're ruling the nations, but they're there. They're influencing. They're tricking. They're lying. They're deceiving. But mainly in this way, the armory that they have is the accusation of your sin against you. 
The reason that you are a- people, we, us, the world, was able to be influenced in such a way by them and oppressed by them is because before God, we were guilty criminals and debtors to his justice. He al- they had jurisdiction, in other words. They were allowed to oppress those who were, who were not reconciled to God, who were enemies of God. He let them do his bidding and in some way bring the curse upon us. But now that our accusation has been dealt with because our legal record has been paid, there is now no accusation against us and their greatest armory is totally emptied. Now if they want to oppress Christians, they have to approach God, somehow convince them, him rather, one God, let's get that right, they must approach God and convince him that he should unforgive us. He should give us back over into our deadness in sin. Is God ever going to do that to those that he has made full in Christ? Of course not. Our salvation is as secure as the divinity of Christ. That's, that's chapter 1 of Colossians. So, the enemies of a sinner is God and secondarily Satan, but Christ, by representing you as a substitute died under God's legal demands and punishment, forgave you of your trespasses, thereby also disarmed the rulers and authorities. Revelation chapter 12 speaks of this same thing in a, in a symbolic, uh, cosmic kind of, kind of uh, uh, imagery. And, and the people in heaven sing, the saints in heaven sing about the downfall of the devil who lost his ability to accuse us. And here's what Revelation 12 says. Now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. Did you hear that? The accuser. The demonic accusers were thrown down of their position of authority and power to accuse us because the blood of the Lamb washed us clean from that which they would want to accuse us of. Thirdly, Jesus died under the wrath of God to cancel our debt. He disarms the rulers and authorities. Thirdly, he raised us with him. So go back to chapter 2, verse 11. (coughs) In him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him." So firstly, this idea of circumcision is that, is that it has been made without hands. Look at verse 11. He says, you've been circumcised, and we say, no, I haven't. or please don't, or what's that? We'll get there, or doesn't apply. Uh, whatever, whatever you hear, when, when he just told you on his apostolic authority, you've been circumcised, and you say, I don't think so, we realize that this is a circumcision made without hands in verse 11. So this is a spiritual circumcision. We see also that it's the same as putting off the body of the flesh. Now, again, you have not put off your physical body. You're here. Most of you look like you're still alive and breathing. And therefore, you have not put off the body. And yet what Paul means is that the sinful body, the sinful part of your nature has been put off. You've still got some sin, but you are not now a dead person. 
you are, you have put off the body of flesh through that circumcision made without hands. The same thing, okay, all of these are the same thing he calls the circumcision of Christ. The thing that Jesus did to our souls in circumcision. So this is compared to the Jewish circumcision, which was a a mark of belonging to God. All of God's people that were male were required from Abraham's day onwards to undergo the act of circumcision, which was a, a bloody thing to watch. It was symbolizing the fact that while they belonged to God, every mother would see it done to their sons. Every wife would know that that had happened. Every male knew that that had happened. It was a constant reminder and sign. Every time you washed, I belong to God. But also that I need a deeper act, a deeper wash, a deeper cleansing, because this act, as bloody as it was and as painful as it was and as cleansing as it was, it's only symbolic that something great and grand must happen to a sinner before they can be reconciled to God. It was a sign that your sinful flesh had to be removed. And that's all good and well until through your lived experience, your conscience and the word of God, you learn that the deadness is in every cell and every thought and every fiber of your being. So how in the world can that be removed from you? Because laws don't work. Better society doesn't work. More religion doesn't work. More praying doesn't work. If you are still a dead person, you cannot. You cannot be, be removed from your deadness when it's in you. It is you. You are dead in your sins, he's just said. You are dead in the uncircumcision of your sin. So how in the world do we go through this thing, this, this circumcision by Christ, the, the spiritual circumcision made without hands? How do we do that? The rest of the language throughout this verse, in verse 12 and into 13, tells us. He says, We have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So it all starts with the having faith. That is how we have been raised, and that is why we symbolize our burial through baptism. By faith, he ra- uh, who raised him from the dead. So we have faith in him who raised Jesus. Verse 13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So here's the answer. God has so joined you to Christ by faith so that that when Jesus died, you died. So that you are dead now 2,000 years ago on the cross of Jesus. And he has so joined you to Jesus so that when Jesus rose up out of the grave, he was also representing you. So that you can say, as if you were Christ, you died to the law. As if you were Christ, you were raised into new life. You didn't do it physically back then, neither were you circumcised physically now, but Christ who raised, Christ who died, joins you to himself so that the the flesh is removed because you died to it, and the new life is given and infused because you raised with him. So that in this whole analogy, this, this picture, we realize that spiritual circumcision is regeneration. He took a dead person, gave you spiritual life. He took a sinner and made you a righteous person in his own righteousness and gave to your nature a rebirth. That is what, whether you realize it or not, if you ever come to the end of yourself, that is what you are yearning for a forgiveness of the sins that are on your conscience and a freedom from your own captivity to sin. 
a life out of the grave, a release from your own dead soul and spiritual nature. That is what Jesus did to us. He died for our sins, he disarmed the rulers, and then by his Holy Spirit, he gave us new birth. He rose us together with him, and that is what he calls the circumcision of the flesh. So our sinful heart is circumcised, the dead nature is removed, and this is all through God making you a new person, an immediate act, not physical, but spiritual, so that you are a new person. You have a new nature, a new heart, with new desires, with new faith in Christ, and you are now able to live righteously, which we could never do before. So God, in Christ, has cancelled our record of guilt against us. He conquered his enemies and the, of the demons and Satan on the cross. He gave us a share in his new resurrection life. And fourthly, he set us free from those demonic realms and powers. Verse 15. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> he has said, number one, that he disarmed them. But also, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. One of the things that the, the ancient world would do, the, the Romans did this uh, magnificently, when there had been a real threat to the existential uh, nature of the kingdom, there is an enemy on our borders marching through our cities and they are going to destroy the kingdom. They're coming from the capital. They're coming from the, the, the waters. They're going to destroy us. All, all of that fearful ancient world kind of warfare. When a foe was out there and the king would lead his, his soldiers out into the battle and you heard from the message runner that he had won... You believe it, you rejoice, but you're really waiting to see the king come back with your sons and husbands. You really want to see them come back because you believe the message, but it's still quite hopeful. When you see something, you don't hope anymore. You just rejoice. So what the kings would do, would lead with their generals, their, their mighty men and the soldiers... They would leave alive the, the leaders of the, of the enemy army. They would chain them up out on the, the, war, the, the, out on the, the, the battlefield. They've, they've been disarmed, but then they're, they're chained up. Sometimes they're gagged. Sometimes they're stripped down to an embarrassing amount of clothes. Sometimes they were put in, uh, in cages, sometimes boxes, sometimes just dragged behind horses, sometimes a big hook down through their jaw, through their tongue. But that's too graphic. I won't mention that one. They had these embarrassing things done to them, and then through the streets, through the towns of the city, they are dragged so that in an open display of two things, the people of the city rejoice. The people of the kingdom rejoice in two things. Number one, I heard it, now I see it, my king has won. He is the conquering king. He did destroy the enemies. This is good news. But secondly, the thing that is put on open display is the mockery, the weakness, and the disarmament of the enemies. So that you spit on those foes as they are dragged, dragged past. You sing songs of victory over those foes who made such big threats, but as long as you are in this kingdom, you are free from them. He puts on an open display. Now, now how does that, that, that analogy work in our world? It is a spiritual imagery. Let me give it to you this way. 
What, what, what we see when we see sinners who were formerly oppressed or possessed by demons come and worship Jesus, you're watching the enemies in their chains and their boxes have cabbages hit them in the skull and songs sung over them. That's probably less common. How about this one? When you see former Roman Catholics who were bound up by the demonic teaching of legalism, when you see ex-Buddhists, ex-Muslims, ex-New Age spiritualists who had made access to, to angelic or other dimensional angels and messengers, people who had engaged in occult activity, when you see those people come into a church together and in community of a kingdom, raise their hands and their voices up, believe the gospel, sing the gospel truths of hymns and songs and spiritual psalms, read the word, hear the exalting of Jesus, and respond with things like baptism and the Lord's Supper and lives lived in obedience, which are, which are just lives that are free from everything the world is bound by. That is a sign, as it happens here, as it happens nation by nation all over the world. That's Jesus on his horse with his sword in the air, proclaiming his condemnation of the devil and sin, proclaiming his victory over the grave and sin, proclaiming his love and righteous gift to you, his kingdom members. That is us watching him ride and the demons and Satan in his chain being mocked and put to open shame. That's what that is. You watch a sinner held fast in the past by, by oppressive spiritual abuse. You watch a sinner held fast by the demonic lies of our culture. You watch a sinner held fast by demonic legalism through false religions. You watch that person go into water and say, I'm dead. And come back up and say, in Jesus, I'm alive. You're watching the open shame be made of the enemies of Christ. This is the good news that the church enjoys, watches in baptism. He says in, uh, uh, back in verse uh, 12 that we were buried with him in baptism which, and you were also raised with him through faith. This dying, this rising with Christ, this being freed from our enemies, this being made right with God because our sins are forgiven happens through faith alone. It is only faith. You don't do anything. You're not given a list of requirements. You're not told to, to, to assent to some new and fantastical human tradition or philosophy. You are told the good news of Jesus, and then it is a belief of who Jesus is and what he did. And you say, okay, I, I believe what you're saying about Jesus. How do I have faith? That's faith. You believe what is said about yourself and about Jesus in the gospel. That is faith. You're being asked to do something, to give something. Jesus was, is, and did it all. And so in baptism we say, I'm going into the water because I died with Jesus. I'm coming back up because I have his new life in me. I've, I've put off the old self. I've put off the, the, the self that was bound to sin. And now, though I have some sin still, yet God is making me a more and more saintly person. In baptism, we are saying, he defeated my enemies. He removed my guilt. He washed me clean. He raises me to new life and leads me in triumph over my spiritual enemies. That's baptism. But look at verse 8. Verse 8, 9, and 10 
make a lot more sense when we've extolled all of that. Verse 8, see to it therefore, and this is where we'll close, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, the angels, the demons of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. You're not being filled with Christ. It's not on offer for the Christians who come enough to church or pray enough or give enough. You have been filled indiscriminately. Those in Christ have been filled with the fullness of deity through the gospel. You're not made deity. You join into Christ and all that he purchases you through his own divinity. And who is the head of all rule and authority? Of course you don't need to fish around for human philosophies. You have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So give up the secular wisdom, the atheistic ideologies and worldviews that you're looking for wisdom for to escape the knowledge of God. Leave it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course you don't need angelic visitations and powers, new ages, spiritualistic people. Of course you need to give that up. Everything is on offer in Jesus Christ and in the gospel, his presence. Of course you don't need a religious list of works to do to remove your sin. That's legalism, Catholicism, maybe harsh and erroneous forms of Christianity that have added laws to the gospel. You don't need to do those. Of course you don't. You have Christ's righteousness. He cancelled your debt. What could he now ask of you? Of course you don't need a special religious leader to join you to God. You have Christ who is the head of all authority. Do you see that a right view of Jesus removes so many heresies, errors, and ideologies that are harmful to us? Bad theology destroys lives and hurts people. Good sound theology drawn up from the wells of Scripture sets people free in the gospel of Jesus. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.